Today, we're speaking with Connie Bowen, Director of Innovation and Investment at AgLaunch, which facilitates the development of new ag tech startups. And she's also the host of the End of Agriculture podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Connie. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Fantastic. So I suppose to start, can you tell us a little bit about AgLaunch? For sure. AgLaunch at its core is really a farmer network. And I am with AgLaunch because farmers are often, I think, not enough a part of the conversation around ag tech or, or even agri-food tech. And so Ag Launch has gradually been formed over the, over the years. It's based in Memphis, Tennessee, with a focus especially on the Delta region and gradual intentional relationship building expansion. Uh, we now have kind of a farmer network that spans in, into Iowa as well as a, a newer branch of our network spanning into Oregon. But at its core, AgLaunch connects technology with farmers. Startups that want to work with and get coached by farmers can work with our network. We'll build some in-house technology to solve for problems. I oversee some of those projects in my role. You know, but there, there are certain issues that we see there needing to be kind of pre-private market solutions for. And we work on some of those. And we are also quite intentional about developing an inclusive pipeline for the future of agriculture and agriculture technology, being very intentional about education in historically marginalized communities and ensuring that the future of agriculture is as bright as it can be. And the network itself, what is the the typical profile of those farmers who kind of opt into that network? Very intentionally diverse. I I would say we've got your traditional, you know, thousands of acres, row crop, broad acre farmers. You've got our soy and our beans and our cotton. And then we've actually, one of our really valuable, interesting, active network members is one acre. He produces all year round in hoop houses. He's gone direct to consumer in COVID. He's he's got like six or 700% sales. He had to convert everything away from restaurants. And so we kind of divide our farmer networks up right now about a bit geographically. So we've got what we call our rural Delta network that's largely based in Tennessee, but it does blur into surrounding states. We've got our urban network in Memphis, which is in its earlier stages. But that's focused more on urban farmers. We're seeing really specialty crops. We're seeing hydroponics, some kind of funky stuff. It's really focused on community inclusion and food access. Then you've got Iowa Network tends to be more traditional, a lot of, lot of soy and corn in Iowa. And then our Oregon Network we're particularly excited about because there's, it's focused really in the William Valley, uh, which is a super diverse crop region. So we get a lot of specialty crop farmers in there. But we do, I should mention, we do have specialty crop farmers and we do have livestock producers in our Delta region. And on the startup side, what are the types of startups that you're working with at the moment? Also fairly diverse. We do run, so we run a couple of different programs. I like to keep it really simple because I want to kind of, I'm happy to talk to anyone who wants to work with farmers and see if we can find a way. That said, we do have some pretty specific tracks that are a little bit more clear cut. So we run what we call a 365 program, which is really our accelerator. And we're actually in the midst of a down select for our 365 row crop challenge, um, which we run in partnership with Farm Journal. And that is, as you can imagine, focused around row crop. Uh, we interpret that pretty broadly. We're very focused on sustainability parameters. We do encourage our farmers to at least think about, and we are beginning to, in some specific instances, 
track for parameters around the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol. So it's a it's a seven part rating system that incorporates various sustainability attributes. It's broadly used for U.S. cotton, and it is increasingly in conversations for other broadacre crops. So, and then like specifically for our technologies, we find that farmers really like stuff that they can play with. I mean, I, as an engineer by at least academia, also have a soft spot for stuff that we can play with. So we've got a lot of robots. We work a lot with, you know, both visual robots, compaction eliminating systems. We've got kind of some labor tracking apps. Again, it just comes down to do farmers want to work with these devices and do they see potential in them? Yeah. Could go on all day about our technologies. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, you know, one of the kind of common elements or perspectives on agriculture and farming is maybe a lack of embrace of kind of whiz-bang technologies in general. So so from your kind of point of view, is that like a misnomer? Like there, there really is this kind of, you know, focus on the ag side? Well, I don't know. I mean, I actually have a bias for there's a need for, I would flip that and say, there are some whiz-bang technologies and I can cut to that, but there's also a bigger need for maybe less whiz-bang technologies. And, you know, in, in a past role, and I still am affiliated with the Field Lab Institute, but I worked for years on a manure technology challenge, and I don't think many people would describe various manure processing systems as whiz-bang exciting technologies. I also think that if we can improve manure management by about 50%, we can reduce global greenhouse gas emissions by close to 1%. And I don't know how many software, you know, like that, that's, that's pretty unbelievable, actually. So I guess my kind of bias would be, you know, I, I come from a venture capital background. Uh, I've worked in, even in um, non-ag VC, kind of the more tradi- seen the more traditional like returns expectations. And, and I understand what that is. And the reality is, is that's not solving for a lot of the problems in our agri-food systems that need to be solved for. It's exciting to me and it's necessary. So then in terms of, because you mentioned this, if the kind of VC expected margins in these kind of 80% plus kind of ranges are, are, are less, there's fewer of those opportunities within ag. What are the kind of the more relevant forms of financing for, you know, the, the kind of startups looking at the space? But first, let me be, to be clear, there are definitely VC investable opportunities in ag. I think that I have, I have, can go through lists of them. So VC is appropriate for a lot of companies, but maybe for something, think equipment where you're never going to have a market. Let's say you have a specialty apple harvester, right? What's the best case exit for that company? Not a billion. It's never going to be a unicorn. And so you, so there are different ways you can approach that. I'm a big fan of impact investment and true impact investment as opposed to kind of a, a greenwashy equivalent of impact investment, which I think we see a lot in ag tech VC, unfortunately. I think that there's an opportunity to leverage that side of things and have a reduced expectations. But, but more often I see kind of alternative investors getting involved. So I've worked with a company domesticating a new crop and I've seen real estate investors who landowners who grew. So a company called Turviva that I worked with long ago, basically it domesticates Pongamia, which is an oil producing crop, which can essentially create an alternative to citrus. And so a lot of the landowners of the citrus orchards in Florida said, hey, let's invest in this because we know citrus greening is a problem today. 
And we know we're going to need to have an alternative crop to produce. And so they saw the upside there. And so that's where, you know, at Ag Launch, part of what we're doing is trying to think through what are some kind of alternative investment structures? What are, and I, I mean, you're seeing this in VC broadly too, actually. What are some alternative, more inclusive investment structures that are realistic and give you attainable kind of realistic return timelines, but maybe aren't today's definition of unicorn venture capital? And I'm sorry to not give more concrete answers. I sure. think that this is a space to watch. It's a space that I, I intentionally spent some time in farmland investment to kind of see where are there some opportunities for new models that aren't so new that they don't work. And some of those models, because one of the ways that money have flowed through the agricultural space in the past is through things like government grants and various kind of, I suppose, state-run funding models. Are you seeing startups try to combine these multiple kind of models using both the likes of government grants and, and whatever was available from the USDA, et cetera, with, again, I suppose, more private sources of capital? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. I think in the U.S., there tends to be a little bit less grant funding opportunities on the startup side. There are a lot of grant funding opportunities. The other side of this, right, is the farmer adoption side and the farmers have the capital to invest in some of these things. And, and also the will, but, but importantly, the capital. And so I do think that we are seeing gradual streamlining of some of the opportunities that are made available by USDA funding, because there are actually opportunities there. NRCS does have a huge number of grants, but they're, you know, burdensome to apply for. I'll say in looking at kind of companies from an international scope, there's definitely a massive blend. And I think we see a lot of private financing Canada does a fantastic job, actually, of um, non-dilutive funding for a lot of these kind of asset-heavy startup infrastructure plays. But I do think that there's room for improvement here. Um, we do. AgLaunch does a pretty interesting thing that is worth mentioning. In partnership with the state of Tennessee, we've got a very good relationship with the Department of Agriculture there. And we actually have a an arrangement where the Department of Agriculture in Tennessee will actually offset the hard costs associated with trials. And this is part of our bread and butter, right? We facilitate trials for ag tech companies at scale over the course of, we say, a minimum of three seasons. We want to be in it for the long run, right? But we facilitate these startup farmer trials. And when a trial takes place in our Tennessee farmer network with startups that we've vetted, the hard cost for that is actually reimbursed, which is great. It draws these startups to the state. Uh, it's kind of a good economic development play for Tennessee. It's great for our farmers because it lets them try these technologies that they might not otherwise be able to. It's a really interesting model that I would like to see in more places. Uh, that's, that's definitely a great model. And I've heard even uh, there's something similar happening uh, in Ireland and, and Scotland. I've heard of somewhat similar models kind of emerging as well. I, I can follow up with you on, the, on some of those. Very good. And then in terms of the, the, the startups that are most successful that you look at, do they typically have founders coming from agricultural backgrounds or, you know, is that not, that's a nice to have and not really necessary? I say it's a nice to have and not really necessary. I also, I mean, I'm a big believer in diverse teams across the board. I like to see someone from an agricultural background. And really, I think we don't see enough people from a kind of a consumer background in agriculture, because I think that's a big part of the missing kind of linkage. The thing that matters, again, is, and this is the thing that matters, I think, probably across the board for startups, is coachability and willingness and desire to work with 
the people who you need to work with to grow your company. And that in a lot of cases in agriculture is farmers, not in all cases, but in many. And does that mean like getting co-located? I mean, obviously we're in COVID times, so everybody's remote, but you know, should people be moving off the coast, getting into, you know, the heartland, trying to walk the land a bit? Well, I would argue yes, but maybe for a different reason. I actually also, I I came to this role through, if you told me five years ago that I lived in Missouri, I would laugh at you. I grew up in suburban New Jersey with New York City being like the city, right? I mean, I actually did this entrepreneurial fellowship program called Venture for America. And that is how I ended up in St. Louis. And through that, I've gained a lot, you know, I was really into urban agriculture before that, indoor farming stuff. And though my family is from the Midwest, we have a Cornsway farm in Iowa. And so I had that exposure, but, but definitely wasn't living it. And I have spent time living too in, in, in farming, farming blueberries and hazelnuts and hemp in rural Oregon. And I will say that it is essential to, you know, there's a, I was digging a hole, I was digging a hole to fix an irrigation pipe. And I was thinking about an irrigation technology that I had just looked at. And I was thinking, huh, I don't really know that this that this is going to get broad adoption <laughs> because the reality is, you know, you do need to have some boots on the ground experience or at least a very high degree of empathy. You've got to have some of that on your team. And I do think that that can conform, come in the form of kind of an advisory member. It just listening can kind of be a good standstill for that. My argument for moving to the heartland is more, you know, there are people here too it's beautiful. There's a lot of space. It's super cheap. It's a great place to start a company. And yet you do when you are building infrastructure for farmers, you need to be able to actually get in your truck or get in, you know, you can drive a Jetta around a field. Trust me, I've done it. It's better to do it in a truck though. (laughs) And you need to be able to get out there and, and talk to folks and actually understand their problems and fix things when your product doesn't work the way you thought it was going to. Because the reality is, it's not going to work the way you thought it was going to. That's just startup life, right? But as long as you're, you know, rushing out there and eager to help out, most people are pretty understanding of that, at least in my experience. And with the nature of farming where, you know, it's seven days a week, 365 a year, how best can entrepreneurs kind of work with those, you know, how busy farmers are in order to actually deploy the technology or deploy the, the idea? Yeah, that's a good point. And I guess the, so the first thing I would say is I've been, and I've been doing this too, but farmers are not, are a very, very broad category. So, uh, you know, especially crop farmer is far different than a Midwest massive acreage row crop farmer is far different than a small, you know. So I think that's the first point is understand is segmenting your market and understanding who you really need to be talking with. I think that it can be very difficult to do. It's a relationship building game. I have seen a couple of startups that I really admire actually essentially build their own farmer networks. And they've done that by very deliberately talking to people who they've been able to get warm introductions to, frankly. I think that, you know, you can't just, it's interesting, right? Because ag has, Precision Ag has been around for a while. I think a lot of people talk about like Climate Corp in, in 2012 as like the the start of the ag tech app kind of like extravaganza. And there's been a lot of, frankly, bad products pushed. And that has made some of what would have been maybe more progressive farmers a bit gun shy. And so just showing up doesn't typically work. You need to be really deliberate about who you're working with and kind of, but the good news is that once you do have a couple of, and I guess I would 
not to make a plug for my organization, but I would argue that because it's so relationally driven, it is really important to work with people who have those relationships, be that a network or some funds have very good relationships with farmers as well. But the good news is about this is like once you are able to get on farm, farmers are competitive and they look over their fence row and they say, huh, that guy over there has something cool. And what are, what are they doing? Maybe I need that. Or are they making more money than me? And it becomes very competitive. And so that does, I think, help um, in expanding once you get a foot in the door. And in terms of, you know, you have the farmers, you have new tech entrepreneurs, but the other kind of big business entities that farmers interact with are these large agribusinesses of various types. How do they fit into the kind of picture, especially with, you know, when these smaller companies are trying to pitch ideas or trying to grow, you know, you have buyer standing alongside with their, you know, billion dollar products. Yeah. So, I mean, it depends, it, it, as with all things, it depends, but I think a lot, and this is where you get the problem where venture capital is appropriate for some things and not other things. For a lot of venture backable, appropriately venture backable startups, and part of this boils down to, if you look at where the acquisitions are coming in ag tech venture capital, they're largely coming from M&A. And so a lot of the more venture-backable startups are actually selling to the agribusinesses and the corporates. With, you know, in my ag launch position and from ag launch's perspective, we are serving farmers first, period. Because of consolidation, farmers tend to be price takers kind of on both ends. There's massive consolidation on the input end. So you got to pay what what's available. And similarly, you know, on the commodity end, you've got low commodity prices and you're going to have to sell to whatever elevators in the region kind of period. You don't have a lot of optionality there. And so a lot of what we're focused on is what are the startups that maybe serve agribusinesses, but how can we actually create more competition amongst agribusinesses in a way that serves farmers? And actually, how can we build some of the startups that can become agribusinesses as opposed to be eaten by existing agribusinesses. And, you know, and I say that it's complicated. I definitely, I guess also I'll mention from, especially from a sustainability standpoint, I'm seeing a lot of the demand for, and I guess the money to pay for sustainability opportunities, be that carbon or theoretically other externality opportunities. A lot of that demand and the capital is coming from the corporates who have these sustainability promises forced on upon them by their shareholders and their customers, frankly. And that's great because it means it makes wherever you're creating room for the farmer to gain an additional revenue stream or decrease their input cost. That's great, right? We just want the farmers to be able to have more profitability, which should enable more flexibility more rapid adoption and ability to actually look up and say, what might I do differently as opposed to just kind of do the thing that they've always done. And so I guess that, that is really where I'm thinking about how agribusiness play into things Though we could get into the weeds of, of various elements of that too. So even within that, that system, you know, talk to, I suppose there's two things I want to kind of cover. So the first is around the kind of monopoly nature, right, of, of agribusiness within the Maybe United States. Oligopoly. <laughs> well, well, I mean, it's interesting seeing, you know, the, the large tech companies being brought into Congress. But, you know, it's a long time since uh, since some of the agribusinesses have brought, been brought into co- Congress, if not, 
if ever. And, you know, I've talked to farmers, as I'm sure you've had, who say, you know, just be nice to have more than three options to buy fertilizer from. You know, there's only, there's only a handful. And so, you know, with, with that kind of the state of play, particularly for these on the chemical side and some of these kind of very, very large industries, like, is there even the possibility of disruption in that? Or are these very, very large companies so entrenched, it would take a completely different business model, really, to, to tackle? Great question. So, I mean, I think that it's possible. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I think it's possible I'm wrong, but I'm going to keep plowing ahead anyways. I think that part of kind of our thesis with Ag Launch is that it's not possible independently for that kind of disruption to happen. You do need to have this support network that is similar. You know, if you look at Monsanto, Bayer, uh, Monsanto still exists under there. And, and I say that as someone who worked across the street from Monsanto for years. They, they have a grower testing network, right? They have these resources that enable them to focus on different innovation areas and capturing different market areas. And you do need that as a company if you want to become that big. You need to have some of those resources and it's very difficult to assemble them all on your own. And so our thought, and then at the same time, I think you see a lot of startups and ad focus on very specific issues that will really only work, well, that will really only be able to become a standalone company by combining kind of some of these features. So I think that our idea is that if you can take a couple of these companies together in a collaborative model, coupled with a couple of things that we work on internally, I think the most interesting and potentially needle moving being, we, we have a data commons at Ad Launch that I'm working on building with a, a, another team. And it is essentially meant to be a resource owned by farmers, controlled by farmers, benefiting farmers, but also benefiting the startups that these farmers choose to work with. And that gives them a leg up in a way that, you know, a lot of these precision ag plays are kind of data plays. And like, how can you get, you know, what's the stickiest thing you can do to get on the most acres? And that doesn't necessarily mean what's the thing that solves the problem the fastest. And that's oftentimes the way that investment decisions, I think, get made is like, how can we get the most acreage? That doesn't necessarily mean you're actually building the product that is useful. And so I think that in leveraging this kind of alternative model we've created, we might have a workaround there. That's my Yeah, guess. hopefully. Absolutely. And the other piece you touched upon was around the, you know, the pressure from very large enterprises, you know, often divestment pressure from ESG asset managers and the like to decarbonize. That pressure gets pushed down through the supply chain um, and the agribusinesses are you know, scrambling to figure it out. Um, and then maybe it's an opportunity for farmers. And so, you know, when I've talked to farmers about that piece, some say, oh, this is great. You know, we get something new that allows us to decommodify. You know, we're now carbon zero or carbon negative, our corn crop or whatever it may be. And someone said, okay, this is just another mandate. You know, even if it, if it raised our costs two cents a pound, like, are we even going to get that back? And we have no margin to play with. You know, from your perspective, like, which, which is more likely to kind of play out? And, you know, if the more negative for farmers, one is more likely, what are the things that could be put in place to prevent that from happening? Okay, I'm going to take this in two ways. One is with my, so I do work a little bit with the Yield Lab Europe Fund in Ireland, and we are close to publishing, actually, maybe by the time this airs, a white paper on 
carbon, well, on greenhouse gas measurements by the Irish EPA, right? And so it's really interesting because for just very high level, within the EU, and actually within the world, Irish dairy is really one of the most sustainable sort dairy producers. You know, who doesn't love Irish butter? But and and also it's it tends to be pastured, which is a carbon sink opportunity. However, the way that the EPA accounts for emissions driven by agriculture exclusively accounts exclusively accounts for emission contribution not brought down. And so that means that well, we at the Yield Up Europe might invest in a company that improves manure management and therefore reduces the footprint of in, in a dairy farm. That reduction is not that practice improvement is not going to be accounted for in the national standards. And so then when you look at policy fixes that are being implemented, the only solution is to call cattle. And that's not a good solution for agriculture, obviously. It's not a good solution, really, I would argue, for the Irish economy either, which has a pretty strong alliance upon agriculture. And it's not a good solution for global sustainability because Irish butter, when you put it next to most, uh, I'm not going to name any specific countries here, but when you put it next to most other production systems is a lot more sustainably produced. And so that's a problem, right? So we have to fix accounting methodology. There are a couple different ways we can approach doing that. Because I'm really mostly focused on the U.S. here and from an ag launch farmer perspective in the U.S., we, we have a very different approach to kind of regulating or not regulating emissions on farm. And so it's a little bit more of a carrot approach uh, than a stick approach. And so that's where things like carbon removal marketplaces, even thinking about, and I think you, you mentioned that like you hear farmers say, okay, I'm going to get two cents more. Who cares? They still have complete control. Well, I, I, yeah, that's totally true because you might get two cents more this year. And then next year they say, yeah, we're not going to buy it anymore unless you abide by the standard. Right. And that then you're doing a lot of work and you're not, you know, we do have this fundamental problem where we're not paying for the full price of our food. Um, now the other kind of ethical side of that is food needs to be accessible to everyone. And so how do you deal with that? Theoretically, that's where policy might come in, I suppose. But I'm not, I'm not a policy expert, so I won't go there. I, but what I, what I do think is an opportunity is for farmers who truly decommoditize by bypassing conventional aggregators and purchasers um, and forming their own different types of models. I, I don't, I hesitate to use the word co-op because co-ops aren't always serving farmers in the way that you would think that they would. But there is absolutely, particularly in this world where we're seeing an increase in direct-to-consumer sales, particularly in this world where we're seeing this focus on traceability, this cheapening of the technology which enables that kind of traceability. I'm hoping that maybe some of, and you're seeing all these different large food brands playing with traceability now, and hopefully that will help to lower the cost and also test out some of these you know, hypotheses that consumers might pay more for sustainability, or they might buy that one over that one because it's more sustainable for the same price. And 
that market research will create opportunities for farmers who want to go ahead and market directly, though bearing in mind that marketing directly is a heck of a lot of work and farming is already a heck of a lot of work. So that's where, yeah, there's challenges. So there still needs to be, you know, if not co-ops, but some form of aggregation, you know, the low carbon farmers of America or whatever it is, and they have some form of verification step so that whether their, you know, their milk is used in some direct-to-consumer brands, fancy butter or whatever it may be, there's still some sort of backward traceability is, is something along those lines? Yeah, backward traceability. I mean, my, my belief is that people don't actually want to know more. Most people, I mean, like you and I might, but that makes us actually exceptional, not normal. Most people aren't going to learn everything about their food system. And actually, even those who are highly interested, you've got a massive, you've got a large trend towards things like veganism, right? Where people are, are conscious consumers, but most people wouldn't understand why I would want that hazelnut orchard to be organic and that one to be conventional, both for sustainability reasons, right? Like that's just, no one is going to get that. And so I believe that it's going to come down to branding and trusted brands. And so that's where on some level, big existing brands have an opportunity, but on another level, they're kind of going to have to acquire smaller brands because they've got something of a tainted brand already. And you already see, you know, I think Annie's is like the go-to, my go-to example for that. So there's the opportunity to create new brands, I think. There's also the opportunity to go the next step. And this is where you have, and this is for things that are less brand, less conventionally branded, which tends to be more produce and, and bulk grains. And that's where I think that there's an interesting opportunity that's tech driven. And, and we're actually working on a project with this as well that links special attributes, whatever attribute you want it to be. It can be some sustainability factor, but it can really be anything. Just link that into a contract system or a smart contract system with an institutional purchaser who can actually start to nudge the supply chain in specific regions. That enables for diversification of production. In theory, it's complicated. Don't get me wrong. We won't get into the weeds of it. But it does enable um, diversification of practices and understanding of what sticks in a way that labels like, um, you know, fair trade, organic, is there going to be a regenerative label? Those labels get really overwhelming, but they're good for later on once we find out that something really seems to be sticky so that we can almost do what I think of as re-commoditizing, right? Like organic in a way is re-commoditizing, which is pretty cool. And thinking then about the, uh, you mentioned some regenerative ag kind of techniques earlier. You know, if you think about over, let's say, a 10 to 15 year time horizon, you know, what are the things you're looking at that might have the largest impact on decarbonization within agriculture? Okay, well, I mean, there's soil is the cheap way to draw down carbon. I am a huge fan of the potential of silvopastoral systems. I'm a huge fan of the potential of silvopastoral systems from a marketing standpoint, actually, especially you start to think about, you know, goats and cows and sheep, all of which produce milk. Um, and it, this is this is like a funny little thing. One of ag tends to resist change, the ag industry sometimes. The number of meetings I've been in where people have said, we just have to get them to drink more milk. And I'm like, oh no. And I, I drink a lot of milk, but I can't, you know, we might produce too much. So I see there being a very interesting opportunity for silvopastoral systems because I think there's a really cool opportunity to combine some of these commodities that don't usually get combined, like nuts and milk. I don't know. It could be cool. I'd buy it. And then 
I also think, and this doesn't get talked about enough, in my opinion, one of the major challenges to actually adopting regenerative practices, be that no-till, I, I, you know, I don't know if you've ever worked on like an organic or a biodynamic farm, but weeding is not that much fun. Uh, it's very expensive. Harvesting, also not that much fun. It's very expensive for the farm, requires a lot of labor. And so then you start to talk about robotics and farm equipment, not exclusively robotics, so even more conventional farm equipment, that enables that type of a transition that requires some type of investment. And, and you can't talk about that without talking about labor crews, labor policies, how people are treated, how people are paid. How do we even source the labor? Because there's massive labor shortages in this country, globally, actually. And then, then step back and say, huh, it's kind of a problem that we, in an economy where there's not, where there's high unemployment rates, we still can't source people to do this work. What does that say about this work? And so I think one thing that doesn't get talked about quite enough in, in the kind of regenerative agriculture conversation or even drawdown conversation is the role that labor and contract labor and this kind of historically biased, I'll say, system interacts with technology adoption. Because there is this kind of, it's not on anyone to increase the efficiency of production in many instances. Sorry, the, the efficiency of labor in many instances. And that's a fundamental problem that needs to be addressed. And isn't talked about. You know, the, the bit that I've uh, kind of gotten involved over the last few months, and actually I grew up on an organic farm in Ireland, and so we did. Uh, we didn't have robots. It was myself and my brother on a Saturday morning <laughs> weeding uh, around the veg. And yeah, and it, again, not, not my favorite job in, in, in life. But yeah, I think, you know, if I think about, you know, the opportunity of soil and regen ag across you know, these vast kind of amounts of land in the United States and the likes of Australia, it doesn't seem like a tech issue to me. It does definitely seems like a cultural slash incentive based issue. And I mean, the labor piece, that's something I haven't heard as many people kind of talk about, but it's, you know, I just see a lot of people in different parts of the value chain pulling in slightly different directions. And it means just kind of not much gets done outside of pilot programs here and there. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's pretty fair. I mean, it's interesting too, because right in specialty crops, you know that you're going to have to do a lot of hand harvest and that type of labor. And like, that's very expensive. And so in certain crops like strawberry, you're seeing a lot of investment actually by producers because they're noticing that they are literally not going to be able to harvest their crop for the price that they have to take for that crop. And that's a fundamental, like, and when we talk about, we talk about food waste a lot too, right? Like, of course, I'm not going to pay a crew to harvest blueberries if I'm going to have to pay the crew more than I can sell my blueberries for. That would be crazy. There's no incentive to do that. And so, you know, the answer could be pay people less. I don't think that's really an ethical answer. So the answer has to be, what's an alternative? How can we make a person more efficient through some sort of augmentation, right? So I, I didn't even talk about the food waste thing, right? But there you go. There's a way to reduce food waste pretty substantially, actually. Yeah, could go on for days about that part. This is my favorite, favorite area. It, I'll say, too, one more thing on it is, because AgLaunch operates in the Delta region, right? Most of our specialty crop in the U.S. is produced in California. California has a drought problem. Climate change is happening as climate change continues. There's been some interesting research done, actually led by Jason Clay at World Wildlife Fund, 
kind of suggesting that the Delta region actually is climactically poised to be the next kind of specialty crop region. And when we think about that, you have to think about all the kind of down, uh, we, the downstream processing infrastructure that's also required, also requires a lot of labor. And you have to think about really what is the labor force and how are there alternatives to the existing labor system that we might ex- begin to experiment within our region? And I think that there are. I was looking, I was talking to some uh, winemakers and they were looking at, can you make wine in Ireland? Because today you can't. And they were trying to figure out, is there ever, you know, in a 30 year time horizon, the potential to make proper wine. And unfortunately, the best place to make it from a weather point of view in 20 years has the worst soil for it. So it's, it's unlikely. But, and, but these are the trade-offs, right? Like right. You, might, you might have the climate, but you may not have the, the rest of the elements to, to make it work. Yeah, well, and climate is one thing that is pretty difficult for us to control. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, you're going to have pretty moldy grapes in Ireland, I think. The worst. Very good. I suppose before we kind of finish up here, you know, with the COVID-19 has changed so many things at a minimum perspective, but also kind of changed a lot of industries. How has COVID-19 affected your views on agriculture and ag tech in general? I mean, my personal views, I would say probably haven't shifted too much. I think it's created an opportunity for me and those who work in this space only so far as, well, I'll say that I think it has it has made me more upset, I'll say, about the labor situation generally. I think that we don't give enough attention to essential workers in the agri-food logistics um, system. And that's just really terrible. But what it, what it has done is it's really brought agriculture more to the forefront. Uh, you know, it's on the front pages a lot more often. People are a little bit more nervous about where their food is coming from. And I think or whether their food is coming to them. And I think that that's good. And I think it creates some opportunities that we have some momentum we can build upon here. I think it also, one thing that I think will be a lasting change, I don't know that awareness will be a lasting change, but I do think that we have accelerated adoption of direct-to-consumer and actually what I think we'll see happening a lot faster than we would have had happen before is kind of, ghost kitchen style grocery stores and they're not grocery stores anymore, I guess. And they're hopefully someone will come up with a more concise term for that. But, you know, you're seeing like Amazon warehouse in Brooklyn, right? I think that that is absolutely going to be commonplace. I think a lot more people are going to order groceries via, and actually I was, I was you know, I think people are going to be a lot more less hesitant to order fresh produce via grocery, uh, particularly those who were really sticky before maybe older demographics who have a lot of the purchasing power are also the demographics who are more at risk. So have been more inclined to be pushed towards some of these, not quite direct, they're not direct to consumer, but e-grocery options. So that's changed. And that creates some interesting opportunities in terms of connecting farm to consumer uh, throughout the supply chain. Absolutely. Just finishing up then, to, you know, really enjoyed our conversation, Connie. Is there anything I should have asked you about but did not? I don't know. I don't think so. That's a fun question, though. Well, I suppose we can do a kind of plug for your uh, podcast then at the end. So the end of agriculture, yourself and and your co-host, I think, get pretty deep dive into specific parts of agriculture. Sure. Yeah. My my friend, Sarah Mock, uh, who's a freelance journalist, and I started, we accidentally started a podcast. We tried to start a newsletter and, and we accidentally started a podcast. 
And we just wanted, so in the end of agriculture, we basically examine the how, might, and the what if behind key elements of agri-food systems. I want to be really clear, both of us is in agriculture as our career forever. Uh, we don't actually want the end of agriculture to happen, but we think it's worth exploring the issues so that we can think thoughtfully about the future. Fantastic. And I've started listening to it and yeah, some great episodes so far. So that's great. Really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you very much, Connie. I appreciate it. Thanks, James. It was fun.